0: Welcome to Behavioural Science Uncovered, the podcast about Behavioural Science and how it's made. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm talking to Orion Bayon from the Erasmus University in Rotterdam. Aurélien, thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Well, thanks for the invitation. Thank you very much.
0: And today we are going to talk about your paper called Bayesian Markets to Elicit Private Information». Could you briefly explain what this paper is about?
1: So, this paper concerns the elicitation of unverifiable information. So, for instance, you know, when we run surveys or experiments, we never know whether people are truthful. And by truthful, I mean whether they're honest, they don't lie, but also whether they carefully consider the question and what to answer. So, how can we incentivize respondents to provide honest and carefully considered answers? So, that's the question uh, this paper tries to tackle. And the challenge is is that in many situations, only the respondents themselves know whether they are answering truthfully and whether they are thinking carefully about the question. Only they know. So how can we solve, uh, how can we in that case provide incentives? And so what this paper does is to make people bet on others' answers. So like, imagine we want to ask people whether they liked this podcast. It can be shown in a Bayesian setup that those who liked the podcast will expect more people liking it than those who did not like it. So this is also supported by the psychological literature on false consensus bias. And so what the Bayesian markets do is to exploit this to provide truth-telling incentives. So if I can, just in a nutshell, so you have a market maker who creates an asset whose value is going to be the proportion of agents, in that case, liking the podcast and people who report that they like the podcast can buy the asset, whereas those who say they dislike it can sell the asset. And so the paper shows under which assumptions you can get truth-telling as a Nash equilibrium. That's basically what the paper does, It's uh, trying to provide uh, truth-telling incentives.
0: That's very interesting. And you mentioned this is an important challenge in survey evidence that we never know whether we can kind of trust the issues. And there has been previous work on this issue, and other researchers have developed a few methods uh, that try to incentivize people to report honestly. But those methods are not market based, like your Bayesian market method. For example, I mentioned the Bayesian Truth Serum method. So, what motivated you to look for a market based approach to belief elicitation, or what? do you think are the advantages and disadvantages of your method?
1: Yeah, so you're completely right that this paper is very much inspired by uh, Drazen's Preleg Bayesian Truth Serum. So that was a paper in 2004 in science. And so it's a beautiful paper with uh, many uh, deep intuitions. And there there are many follow-up papers, a few experimental and quite a few in uh, computer sciences. And, you know, I was just wondering whether we could make, we could have a mechanism that would be a bit simpler and more transparent than the Bayesian Truth Serum. So those who used it in a, who used the Bayesian Truth Serum in experiments, they never really explained the full mechanism to the respondents. And for an experimental economist, or more generally for an economist, that can be a problem. You like to be transparent about mechanism when you do mechanism design. Subjects are supposed to know how the mechanism works. And in computer sciences, I can very briefly and grossly summarize their work there. They were more interested in making it robust than making it simple. So I tried to develop the simplest version I could think of, and the idea was maybe I can use some of the intuitions from betting markets or prediction markets. So trying to use some of the intuitions we have to simplify a bit the way it works. And I also you have put in some concepts that we use daily in experimental economics, like for instance, a random price. So. Ultimately, with uh, like using a bit of market IDs and a bit of uh, experimental economics IDs, I could claim that I was making it simpler because I'm asking less information from the respondents, and also the payment rule that I got at the end, how much people can be paid with those incentives, was much more transparent in the sense it's just a subtraction, whereas most like other uh, truth serum tend to be, uh, obeyant truth serum tend to be uh, complex in terms of uh, payment formula. So it was really trying to use things that we know from betting markets or what we know from experimental economics to simplify and get the similar results, but with something more transparent.
0: Okay. So you, so basically, you say, would say that your idea was to have something that is also incentive compatible, like the other methods, but it's kind of the simplest possible version to make it really easy to apply it in, in real-world service. Was that kind of- So I would say,
1: project? yeah, I would say simplest version I could think of at that time. <laughs> Whether it's the simplest, absolutely, I don't know in absolute terms, but I really tried to go as far well as I could in simplifying it.
0: Okay, great. And I'm wondering, so the majority of your work is in a little bit of a different research agenda where you look at the intersection of decision theory and experimental economics. And this project is kind of part of a started somewhat of a new research agenda because you also have a new project on uh, eliciting true beliefs that we may, might touch on later. How did the idea for this project come about? So how did you start this line of research?
1: Well, when I started working on it, it didn't completely feel like a different research agenda. So I was working on belief elicitation and more generally on how you can objectively measure subjective concepts. That's the thing that I always like to think about. And so I have uh, papers trying to measure belief, ambiguity attitudes, risk attitudes and uh, like yeah, utility, probability, weighting, stuff like that. So those are some subjective concepts or subjective components of uh, people's behavior. And uh, how can we objectively measure them? And since my very first paper, so the very first experiment I conducted, uh, I've been trying to do uh, this type of measuring with very simple bets. So bets that, that people can easily understand. That's the goal. I don't say they are always simple, but uh, I always try. And I started like about 10 years ago. So Drazan Pradek was a, a, and has been a regular visitor of the behavioral economics group at Erasmus University. And so around 2010, 2012 or so, yeah, around that time, he was often talking about his work on Bayesian truth serum, some implementations. And uh, also we yeah, have from this practical point of view, and he was highlighting which parts were more crucial for practical ap- application. So in a way it was, yeah, showing the way how to make it simpler and at the same time i was working on betting mechanism prediction markets so i thought oh maybe i can use some of those intuitions that i have from my work on decision under uncertainty experimental economics and use them to try to make these uh, type of mechanisms like the bayesian truth serum trying to make it simpler more easily understandable
0: it's interesting. So basically, there was a kind of a link between your previous research and this, even though if it goes in a little bit of a different direction.
1: Exactly. So it can feel that it's not exactly. But uh, so initially, when I started working on it, for me, it was uh, just the uh, continuation, or it seemed like the continuation.
0: And how long did it take you approximately to write this paper from the point where you had the idea to the point where you submitted it, and maybe then also to, uh, to the point where it actually got published?
1: And so... The funny thing is I really remember when I got the first basic intuition (laughs) because that was (laughs) in spring 2013 and I was uh, uh, on vacation then (laughs) and uh, I was uh, scuba diving uh, at the Red Sea (laughs) and you know usually I tend to use my vacation to waste time on vague ideas you know like uh, just to let my brain just go about like anything and think about projects that might be just moonshots or which are not, not crucial uh, at that time so and when uh, so that was spring 2013 also i had this uh, basic idea and back uh, to the university back at the university afterwards i had to work on other things but a year later in spring 2014 i had to work uh, to apply uh, for grants and then at that point i checked whether the idea I had a year before could work. So I had, uh, at that point, I had the sketch of the proof for the main idea of the main theorem, I would say. So not uh, something very complete, but I had enough confidence that I could make it work. And so then I wrote the first draft of the paper a bit more than a year later when I got the grant and then uh, and that was roughly then in 2016 i started presenting the paper to various uh, types of audiences and uh, i got a a paper ready to submit roughly uh, mid uh, 2016. so that was uh, yeah and so the first submission was uh, yeah mid uh,
0: 2016. okay just follow up on that i'm also when i'm brainstorming for ideas that are not maybe like long shots that are maybe not exactly in the field that I'm currently working on. Usually when I look up on them, I figure out that uh, I'm, I'm not as brilliant and original as I thought and someone has done them already. So if you kind of say you you think about this, like freely think about these ideas that are maybe not exactly what you're working on normally in your research. Do you have any, like at which point do you check whether this idea is actually, actually novel or whether it has been done before?
1: Well, usually I try to see whether I can study this idea from the point of view of what i'm currently doing so such that i know there's a chance i can have some comparative advantage so like for instance when i was working on this well uh, i hadn't carefully reviewed the literature but i had seen enough presentations that i had an idea of what people were doing there on that topic and and usually yeah so i try to see whether i can Start a project based on what I already know and uh, where I can be, uh, where my comparative advantage may lie. So, for instance, (laughs) I don't remember, I should uh, look into it. Uh, There's, I think it's an actor or comedian who said once, uh, Don't leave, I don't leave my comfort zone. I try to make my comfort zone bigger. And that's basically what I, I try to do. Like to see whether I can start from what I already know and then expand it slightly or or work on different projects but from uh, where my comparative advantage may lie.
0: Yeah very interesting and this paper got published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science and that is a bit of an interesting choice for an economics paper right? because this journal publishes in a diversity of fields and on a wide range of topics and it's not really famous for publishing a lot of theory papers so what uh, made you think that this journal was the right one for this article
1: so so i wanted to try uh multidisciplinary journals and the, the goal was really to reach out to other communities because those are this is a literature which is also expanding in computer sciences and also uh, a bit in uh, marketing. There are a couple of papers. So, so I just wanted to have something which would sound broader than the typical icon journal, where maybe like uh, yeah, people from other fields would never look into that one. So it was a, a long shot. and uh, But the goal was really uh, trying to reach out to other communities, other groups. And then that actually quite helped because afterwards I got uh, invited in uh, uh, um, some... Uh, seminars uh, or uh, workshops or conferences, more in either computer sciences or uh, fintech and machine learning and things like that. And I think, yeah, it helped a bit that uh, I tried to publish in journals which uh, reach, which is read by uh, other communities.
0: And can you tell us a little bit more about the submission process and history of the paper? So kind of how long did it take to publish this paper from the first time you submitted it to the time it was actually accepted?
1: So the first submission was a very, a very fast desk reject. So, uh, you know, because I was trying to have a, a multidisciplinary journal, I tried science desk reject and that was also like uh, mid 2016. And then uh, so I tried uh, PNAS, uh, and so that was uh, and I got revised and resubmit. And that was, yeah, around August or September 2016. I remember that because the R&R email got into my spam folder, so I missed it for a couple of weeks. And then I checked my spam folder. So always check your spam folder, sometimes the news in it, that's uh, uh, that's my advice. And otherwise, uh, yeah, so it was an R&R. And- What was interesting is the reviewers were seemed to be clearly more senior economists who uh, could give advice, who had like an overview of the literature and could give advice about how to uh, position and uh, they were asking for substantial rewriting, but mostly rewriting. And then so I resubmitted it a couple of months later. And then it went to uh, uh, those two reviewers were quite happy with the revision and it went also to a third reviewer who was more from computer sciences and that reviewer asked for more revision and at Pinas they have this policy that uh, you cannot have too many rounds so the paper was rejected at that time but with the door open to resubmit or to submit again as a new submission and so that was uh, yeah more or less in the winter 2016-2017 and I worked quite a lot again on that revision and there The goal was really trying to to be able to formally say that the mechanism was simpler so that really helped improve the paper again and to to make it clear that the mechanism was simpler than what existed so i could resubmit it uh yeah early 2017 got another round of minor revisions and it was accepted uh, in June 2017 and published uh, a couple of, uh, like a month later. Or so it was uh, very fast. The, like, PINAS was extremely fast between uh, acceptance and publication.
0: Would you say it's maybe a challenge of interdisciplinary journals that you can get reviewers from different fields, and every field kind of has their own way of writing papers? So we sometimes have reviewers disagreeing just because they're used to different ways of writing papers. Or
1: well, I don't know whether it's a ch- well, it's a challenge, but it's also what is fun. So and I like to try to publish in different types of journals. Yeah, one of the latest uh, uh paper I got accepted was is in uh, psychological science and that was also a completely different way of uh, of writing up the paper and also a completely uh, different type of review process. So I find it interesting because uh, uh it forces you to question a bit your habits and I've been reviewing for journals Also, uh, more like uh, evolution and human behavior journal, for instance. And there you have people who come more from biology, people who come more from psychology. And I could see that they have different. Uh, approaches. And even uh, as a reviewer, I could also uh, question myself on whether uh, what I would have recommended for an econ journal was also applicable there. So it forces you to question a bit why you're doing things one way and uh, not to have this idea that there's only one way or the, the way we do, us, uh, we do it in economics, for instance, and try to understand why others have different approaches. And usually there, there's a good reason, which is interesting to, to know.
0: And now with the benefit of hindsight, is there anything that you would have done differently in the way like how you developed this idea and turned it into the paper?
1: Yeah, a lot. Many things, many things. And... But it's also this is why I keep working on it. And that's maybe uh, true for all of all of my papers. And once they are published, I always think, oh, I should have done it differently. I should have done it better. Or I should have changed that and that. And then I work on the new projects trying to make it better. And so this is why I tend to have uh, uh, like papers that uh, built upon each other because I'm never happy with what I have. And so, for instance, in that paper, the way one thing is uh, that when we try to implement it and we also we have a couple of projects where we implemented by even markets we still realized that there were some things that uh, could go wrong so then we try to uh, develop new mechanism that solve those problems and uh, so uh, and yeah so that's why i have uh, now a couple of other projects that try to uh, improve upon uh, this project and typically uh, how to make sure that how to make it slightly more robust to some uh, phenomena that uh, could go wrong, that it's still a bit too complicated for some settings. And yeah, that's uh, what I've been uh, yeah, working on more recently.
0: Very interesting. I actually wanted to talk a little bit about, about that in the sense that if you run a survey on an experimenters and economists, you kind of often face the choice between just asking people for their beliefs and having a simple unincentivized question or whether you, want to, you need to choose whether you want to design some sort of Incentive compatible elicitation mechanism, but that's basically always adds additional complexity, right? Because you need to explain the incentives and you need to explain why uh, it's in their best interest to answer truthfully. So I'm wondering what's your thought on whether when it makes sense to kind of add the extra complexity to have something incentive compatible versus just asking them and trusting that they uh, that they give a true answer.
1: Funny to to hear me say that because I've been uh, uh, talking about providing truth-telling incentives now for uh, 20 minutes, but I also completely agree that in some cases, it doesn't make sense to provide incentives, that you uh, better have hypothetical questions that people can understand. And uh, I have some papers which are with hypothetical uh, choices. For instance, when you want to study losses, if you want to have like major losses, you want people to think about big losses, then sometimes it's just good not to have incentives if you want to uh, to study belief about uh, one's health and if you have the general population and there I, I happen to have contributed to surveys in uh, various countries where we have populations with different education level like for instance we have i've been involved in some projects in the philippines where we had different types of, of, of or different parts of the population then in the, those cases, I think uh, just going for purely hypothetical uh, is uh, much better. So, but the only thing is if we want to know what's the impact of incentives and whether hypothetical are a big problem or not, then we need to have mechanisms that provide incentives. So, and then we can test in the lab what effect it can have. So I'm working on such mechanisms providing incentives to see whether it matters. For instance, I have a a project with uh, two colleagues of mine, uh, Han Blechroth and Georg Granik, where we try to to see whether using BTS, so Bayesian true serum, when you measure people's happiness, or whether you measure some health-related questions, whether uh, it provides different types of answers. And what we could see is that uh, usually it doesn't have much of an effect, but if your survey has a bias. So we it was a, we conducted a, a study where we manipulated in a, one version of the survey where we would introduce some kind of default, so uh, such that people who had the survey would be biased in one direction. Well, providing incentives help reduce the bias. So usually my main or the main takeaway that uh, uh, we learned from that experiment was. Well, you can trust people, but if your survey may have some biases, maybe it's good to try to provide incentives to, um, uh, to counter those biases.
0: Interesting. So in that sense, it would be more that the people don't try to actively lie to you. But if you have some sort of default, maybe uh, then if you don't incentivize them, they just don't care enough to kind of overcome this default.
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and I have another project, the projects I've been working on yesterday where we have a simplified version of the Bayesian market and we try to see whether we could make people provide more effort. Uh, to uh, when they answer some questions. And we tried like some natural questions about uh, their behavior, but also uh, a more artificial task where you you need to provide an effort and then you get a signal. So this is a typical uh, task that are used in experimental economics. And we could uh, again see that providing those incentives can increase the degree of effort but even without incentives uh, people will already provide some effort so it's not that it's completely uh, wrong when we don't provide incentives just we can help a bit people provide more effort when we with uh, incentives so it can help
0: and we mentioned a prediction markets a couple of times during the last half hour which are conceptually similar to bayesian markets with the difference is that with prediction markets you have and in- objectively verifiable event, like who will become the next president of the United States. And then you let people bet on that. And and that makes it a bit easier because you have a clear defined point at which you know whether the event is true or not. Um, And these prediction markets are actually quite successful. And there are a couple of prediction markets running with real money, uh, for example, to bet on elections at the moment. Do you think that we will see real-world Bayesian markets where people uh, kind of trade with, with real money soon? And if so, what kind of questions do you think will be asked? Or what are the most interesting questions to ask with Bayesian markets?
1: There's one big limitation to a Bayesian market and but to the whole literature on Bayesian truth serum. And uh, there's also a literature called peer prediction uh, mechanism. One of the big limitations we have there is that the, the type of results we obtain of the form of Nash equilibria. And so not a really an equilibrium. And often it's only one possible Nash equilibrium, meaning that in terms of mechanism design, we have partial implementation, not full implementation of truth telling. And that is a strong limitation of this type of mechanism, mm-hmm. because it uh, makes it uh, you, you could also imagine that if it If it gets very big stakes, like so if you have a Bayesian market about something extremely important, you could imagine that uh, people would find ways to manipulate it because we only have partial implementation because we're only talking about Nash equilibrium when coordination is not possible. So this is why it's important to work on the theory because we know what can be wrong and there we know for now those mechanisms can be used for small questions uh, where you want people to provide uh, more effort Uh, but if people have very strong incentives to manipulate they won't help well uh, that's also a bit of uh, a risk in uh, prediction markets but for prediction markets when they are big enough then there's uh, less risk of manipulation fewer risks of manipulation so yeah The big problem is that, so then it reduces, uh, but this is why we are working on mechanisms, trying to see under which assumptions or for which, uh, and when I say under which assumptions, I mean, for which kind of problem we could have uh, a stronger form of implementations. Like, could we have full implementation in some setting and not only partial implementation.
0: Interesting. Then another thing with with Bayesian markets is that they need to be subsidized by the market maker compared to prediction markets, which uh, run cost neutral for the market maker and where, it's really the participants who kind of exchange money. Yeah. Um, do you think that is another issue? And if so, do you have any ideas on how this could be overcome?
1: Yeah, so there, there are some, uh, yeah, so usually the way I, when I worked on it, I thought more of situations where anyhow, uh, we, uh, for instance, we are a survey company and we want to collect data and usually we already pay respondents. So uh, subsidizing data collection is done all the time. So I don't see it as a big problem in itself. But if you want to use it like as self-standing uh, markets that we are going uh, with with no one subsidizing them, then indeed uh, the cost uh, can be a problem. For this version of Bayesian markets, there might be some uh, tricky ways or tricky uh, aspects to make it work. But in general, for in the literature on this type of mechanism, on Bayesian truth serum mechanism, or, and there's a, a more recent papers, a paper published two years ago in American Economic Review Insight, and called uh, Choice Matching. So Honesty via, via Choice Matching is the title of this paper, and it's by Drazen Preleg with uh, co-authors and including a, a PhD student we uh, jointly supervised, Benjamin Terhaik. In that paper, they also discussed these budget issues and how you can make it budget neutral. So they have a mechanism that could be uh, budget neutral, and that is also a bit simpler than uh, by Jean Serum. Yeah, which is quite simpler than Bayesian tricerum and a bit more uh, so. The, yeah, more easily applicable. So in that literature, it's it can be a problem, and there are some uh, with uh, mechanisms such as Bayesian tricerum or, or choice matching. You, there are solutions for that uh, Bayesian market, not yet.
0: I see. And you also have a more recent paper on a similar topic with Yan Zhu, in which you study other methods to address the beliefs which are called top flop betting and threshold betting. Could you briefly explain how those work?
1: The general idea in all those mechanisms is that if someone gets, say, from a positive signal, so for instance, they like this podcast, then they will expect more people to like this podcast than we would have expected ex ante. And those who get the negative signals will expect fewer people liking the podcast than we would have expected ex ante. And this idea of we would have expected ex ante, there are different ways to, uh, to define it. Or to have a proxy for it. And in Bayesian market, I do that with you know, some random pricing and the market structure with buyers and sellers to, to have some proxy for it. In the Bayesian true serum, it's based on, so the proxy for what we would have expected ex ante is what people predict exposed and the average of uh, everyone. And in this paper with uh, Yen Xu, we we looked at situations where we could have measures that already exist of what we could have expected ex ante. And our idea there was to say, well, maybe in some settings. So if we think about this podcast, we could ask people, do you expect this podcast will have more people liking it than a random other podcast that will come in the future? And we try to see under which circumstances this gives you truth telling. And the, the idea is instead of having a problem of the form of a beauty contest or guessing game where the only thing you have to guess is what others are going to say, we ask whether they will expect more people liking the podcast than people liking a uh, random other podcast from the same series that allows us to uh, not to, to care about whether it's going to be the majority or not, but it's more than we would have expected. And the we would have expected is defined in that type of mechanism. In uh, the paper with uh, Yen, uh, we define it as what uh, random the, the proportion of people liking a random other podcast, another random podcast from the series.
0: Oh, interesting and so you mentioned already that you kind of when you're looking into a new project you're kind of looking to places where you have a competitive advantage could you talk a little bit more about how you decide which new project to take on out of the many ideas that you probably have
1: and so it's the combination of uh, two questions I ask my, myself. So when I have an idea or when someone comes to me with, with an idea, uh, I always uh, ask myself, OK, is it fun and what's the added value or what is my added value? So is it fun? Because there are some projects which uh, if uh, I think I'm not going to enjoy working on it while well, I'm in the luxury position that I don't have to work on it because I can choose my own project. So if I don't think I'm going to enjoy working on it, I'm not. Uh, doing it and and what is my uh, added value is also if I don't think I can really contribute then I don't really see uh, uh why uh, uh, I should work on it, because it's not efficient from a public money point of view. <laughs> so it's you see, like, I have the luxury to think uh, or to choose what, what is fun, but then at least I should have a clear added value to, to that project. Well, there are some exceptions. Sometimes I go for fun even if I don't have much added value. And uh, in the sense that uh, ex ante, I don't know much about that topic, but still uh, because I think it's fun, I, I work on it. And there are also some exceptions where some projects I think I can really help even if it's not so fun, so I also do exceptions in that direction as well. But it's yeah, usually that how much fun and what's the added value.
0: Finally, kind of conclude the interview, do you have a single piece of advice that you would give a young researcher who's kind of interested in starting not just one paper, but kind of finding their own research agenda and finding a topic where they want to write a couple of papers on?
1: Yeah. So I don't know whether it's a topic, like a research agenda has to be a topic or an approach, because sometimes it can also be that, but I would usually say try to find your comparative advantage. And I'm not saying absolute advantage, so that makes life easier because if we had to be uh, the best one on one topic, yeah, that makes it quite difficult, but it's enough that if we have a comparative advantage. So uh, it's really trying to find where you can have a contribution. So usually I, I know that I can have some added value. When it's at the intersection of theory, measuring methodology or uh, measuring methods or methodology uh, in general, and experimental or empirical work. So I usually can have an added value when there's something that involves uh, a combination of those three aspects. That uh, you need to understand some theory and you also need to think about methodological aspects and you also need to care about how to implement it in practice or to run it in the lab. And that's where I found that I have some kind of comparative advantage because I'm at the intersection of the three. And uh, at that intersection, I can contribute a bit. Uh, but yeah, so it's trying to find your comparative advantage where something that others don't have so easily or those who have it may have more important things to do on a, or, or those who have an absolute advantage maybe are not working on that. So just use your comparative advantage.
0: Great. And- I'm wondering, maybe it has been too long ago for you to still remember that, but now you have you you kind of, it's kind of clear for you probably what your competitive advantage is because you worked on a lot of projects. But when you were starting out as a researcher, when you were choosing what to write for your first paper, how did you do that? Do you still remember? Or would you have like with the hindsight knowledge that you have now? How would you advise a young researcher they should kind of go about looking for their competitive advantage?
1: So my first papers and my first experiments were already suggested. And so what I did do during my PhD, I had several papers joined with my supervisors and they were. And so they were telling me in a way what mattered and then I was trying to work on it. So I know that there's, you know, this romantic image of a graduate student who find his or her research agenda At the start of the phd process or like during the phd process and then work carry on that and that you need to have your job market paper with the uh that you need to know very fast very uh, early what is your advantage that you need to know uh, very fast what is your uh, research agenda and for me it started quite slowly in a way so i had the first couple of projects i worked with uh, uh, my uh, supervisors and then i started more and more taking the initiatives myself and by just trying to once i knew the literature then I could more easily find what was missing, and I also knew what was possible because I had I had worked on some projects already. Uh, so like when uh, before you worked on enough projects, you don't really know what is possible, and before you know the literature well enough, then you also don't know what is relevant. And trying to, uh, so this is why at the very start of your PhD, I find it very difficult. So I don't think it's bad if uh, PhD students work also on a couple of projects more with their supervisor, and then in parallel they can start working on their own and discover what they are good at what they find relevant
0: okay great thanks for for the advice and your thoughts on starting a research agenda um and we have come to the end of the podcast thank you again uh, for coming on the podcast
1: thank you uh, very much it was uh, a pleasure